Chapter 9 of Studies in Stagecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Angelisi. Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. Chapter 9. The Value of Stage Conventions. In his Carol of Occupations, Walt Whitman said, All architecture is what you do to it when you look upon it. All music is what awakes from you when you are reminded by the instruments. It is particularly true of the drama that the only finally effective scenes are those that happen not so much upon the stage as in the mind of the spectator. The purpose of a play is not to reproduce the actual, but to suggest the real, and this suggestion must be made through the medium of many theatrical conventions which, though in themselves unnatural, are competent to stimulate the audience to the imagining of nature. The conventions of the theater have differed widely in different times and lands, and the acceptance of any particular set of conventions is merely a matter of public custom. To the theater-going public of any period, the conventions of their own stage always seem simple and natural because they are accustomed to them, whereas the conventions of any other period appear unnatural and forced. To our public at the present time, it would seem funny if the actors in a tragedy should wear cardboard masks and walk on stilted boots. Yet this convention seems simple and natural to the Athenians who listen to the tragedies of Sophocles. It would seem unnatural today if an ancient Roman emperor should appear upon the stage in the costume of Louis the Fourteenth of France. Yet this convention was employed without disadvantage in the tragedies of Racine. We should think it odd if an orator on a bare platform out of doors, with the afternoon sun striking full upon his face, should suddenly remark, "'Tis now the very witching time of night." But Shakespeare's audience in 1602 never thought of laughing when Burbage read this line in Hamlet. We should regard it as unusual if an actor should enter a room by walking through the walls, but this convention never bothered the original spectators of the school for scandal. By such expedients as these, Sophocles and Shakespeare and Racine and Sheridan stimulated in their audiences a keener sense of truth than is ever suggested by our own minute and timorous imitations of the actual. Because of the influence of custom, the public of today pays no attention to many artifices of our own theater which are fully as unnatural as the conventions that have just been noticed. It is not natural, for instance, that a room should have three walls instead of four, and that nearly all the furniture should be turned to face the invisible fourth wall. In actual life, people talk for two hours without moving from a chair, but on our stage they get up at the end of every two or three minutes and cross over to another chair on the opposite side of the room. Furthermore, our actors keep their faces turned nine-tenths of the time in a single, certain direction, and whisper their most intimate concerns in a voice that is easily audible to a thousand people. In our modern theater, people eat an elaborate dinner of a dozen courses in ten minutes or less. They rarely write a letter without reading it aloud as they compose it. And if they light a single lamp, they increase by several hundred candle power the illumination of the room. An actor who has just dropped dead upon the stage gets up a moment afterwards to smile and make a speech. Two hours elapse in ten minutes, and when an actor fingers a piano, the music comes from off the stage. These conventions, 
viewed from an external and unsympathetic point of view, are just as ridiculous as those which were employed by Sophocles and Shakespeare, and the only reason why we do not laugh at them today is that we are accustomed to accept them. The drama can never be natural, for the ultimate and lofty reason that if ever it should succeed in this endeavor it would annihilate its own excuse for being. Art would be unnecessary unless it were different from nature. In light of this truth, the present prevailing endeavor of our stage to hold, in a precise and literal sense, the mirror up to nature must be regarded as a waste of energy. Often in our modern theater we prevent the audience from imagining the real by setting before it too literal an imitation of the actual. It is therefore desirable, for the aesthetic education of our contemporary theatergoers, that they should be reminded now and then of the freer and less literal conventions that have been easily accepted in the drama of other times and lands. From the cultural and critical standpoint, this is the main advantage of such exhibitions of the stage conventions of other periods as were offered in that memorable series of historical matinees that marked the closing of weeks of the new theater. It is good for us to be reminded now and then that the dramatic method of Shakespeare was, with all its crudities, more stimulating to the imagination than is the dramatic method of Mr. Belasco. But to accomplish this, it is necessary to produce Shakespeare in the Elizabethan manner instead of in the manner of today. Looked upon in the light of such considerations as these, the recent production of The Yellow Jacket must be regarded as the most educative offering which has been presented in New York for several seasons. No interested student of the stage can afford to ignore it. But the merits of this remarkable play are not merely educational. For, apart from its historical significance, it is an aesthetic composition of rare and subtle beauty. The Yellow Jacket is an imaginary Chinese play, presented in accordance with the conventions of the Chinese theater. It was devised and written by Mr. J. Harry Benrimo and Mr. George C. Hazelton, Jr. The scene represents the stage of the old Jackson Street Theater in San Francisco, and upon this stage a typical Chinese story is enacted in the Chinese manner. The convention of the Chinese stage are curiously similar to those of the Elizabethan theater, and the story of the Yellow Jacket is therefore unfolded in accordance with a narrative method that is almost identical to Shakespeare's. As in the Globe Theater on the Bankside, the stage is a platform devoid of scenery, but decorated by furniture and properties that are shifted from dialogue to dialogue to accommodate the exigencies of the action. Again, as at the Globe, there is a door at either side of the rear of the stage, one for entrances and one for exits. Between these doors there is an alcove, or recess, which was used by Shakespeare as part of the imagined scene, but is employed in the Chinese theater to house the orchestra that accompanies the dialogue with incidental music. Over this alcove there is, in both theaters, a balcony, or upper stage, which may be used at any moment in the presentation of the story. The scene is imagined to be wherever the actors say that it is, and the place of the action may be shifted by the simple expedient of emptying the stage through the exit door and bringing on new actors through the entrance door. There is a chorus, as in Shakespeare's Henry V, to ask the audience to imagine the locality of the scene about to be presented, 
and from dialogue to dialogue the furniture is shifted by a property man who is dressed in black and is supposed to be invisible these chinese conventions which are identical at nearly every point with those of shakespeare are only in a small degree less natural than those of our american stage today but because our public is not used to them they seem to us ridiculous of this necessary reaction of the occidental audience the authors of the yellow jacket have carefully made capital they have invited the american public to laugh at the conventions of the chinese theatre and have thereby enriched their play with comedy but by doing this they have also accomplished a more difficult achievement they seem to have reasoned that their auditors by the mere exercise of laughing their fill at these outlandish artifices would become so accustomed to them that in time these very conventions would cease to seem ridiculous and might securely be employed for the suggestion of lofty poetry and pognant pathos this subtle triumph has been successfully achieved it would be superfluous to summarize the story of this play since no enumeration of its ever-fluctuating flow of incidents could suggest the whimsical and subtle art with which the story is unfolded the black-robed property man who is supposed to be invisible piles a few chairs together in the middle of the stage smoking all the while a careless cigarette and looking ludicrously bored at the performance a young man and a young woman climb upon the chairs and tell you that they are reclining in a flower-boat that is drifting slowly down a river two attendants imagined to be boatmen stand behind the chairs and pull rhythmically at the unresisting air with slender bamboo rods imagined to be oars while a musician in full view of the audience scrapes two pieces of sandpaper together to imitate the swish of water along the bilge of a boat and lo in spite of or perhaps because of the crudity of these conventions the auditor finds himself really and truly because imaginatively drifting in a boat banked with flowers and lyrical with song and redolent of youth and love to achieve such an eloquent effect as this by means so primitive and childish is a scarcely precedented triumph of theatric art the story drifts through many different moods satiric tragic lyric pathetic and all these moods are rendered easily through media of utterance at which the audience has laughed heartily only a moment before the lines are beautifully written and the action appeals so poignantly to the imagination that we realize a life-revealing vision of which no literal transcription is presented on the stage end of chapter nine recording by sarah angelisi